0: Uh, Tonight, the topic is, anyone can pick up sticks. Before we go into the actual topic, we need to set um, some information to tell us what's going to happen. First part of that information has to do with the Sabbath. Um, The Hebrew word is up there, Sabbath, and when you look at different lexicons, It means a day of rest, to cease, to desist. When you um, think about the Sabbath, we always kind of think about uh, the Old Testament. And we know in Exodus 20 and verse 8, as part of the Ten Commandments, what does it say? It says, remember the Sabbath and do what? Keep it holy. When you look at... Exodus 31, and I'm going to put a a, um, verse up there. You see that in this chapter of 31, they are kind of divvying out the construction of the temple, or I mean of the tabernacle. Then you have the law of the Sabbath, and then you have uh, Moses returning from Sinai with the Ten Commandments on the stone. Well, here is is what's given us in uh, chapter 31 and 14. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Most of your scholars say being cut off and death are really the same thing because you're going to be cut off from the people because of death when you think about the sabbath the sabbath was for what group of people the israelites so we have something that's a a law for them when you go a little farther on the sabbath it tells us you shall keep it It's going to be a sign between the Lord and you, the Israelites. It's holy and it's a perpetual covenant. I'm going to put some verses up here, and if you'll turn to Deuteronomy 5 and verse 12. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 12. I wanted to read that section on what it said about the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 12. It says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days, this is verse 13, you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your manservant and your maidservant may rest as well as you. And then in verse 15, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. If you remember, besides these other verses, also, in Exodus 16, there was kind of the start of the Sabbath because the Lord, when he furnished them bread, what did he tell them to do when they got close to the Sabbath? Anybody remember? Twice Twice mouth. They had to pick up twice so that they wouldn't do anything on the Sabbath. So you see that this law is in effect and it's important. Now if you turn over to Numbers uh, chapter 15, Numbers chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 32. Here is a a fairly long chapter of of, uh, 41 verses, and this is just a small section of it, which is um, verse 32 through 36, which I'm going to read. In my, my particular Bible, on the front of these verses, say penalty for violating the Sabbath. So in verse 32, it says, Now while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. Verse 34. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. You see this just a small insert here. What was this man's name? (coughs) We don't know, do we? So here's a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And when he gathers them, you have some witnesses that catch him doing it. So they bring him to Moses, and if you remember the way I read it, they bring him to Moses, Aaron, and who? The congregation, don't they? And the Lord says to Moses, stone him and stone him outside the camp. All the congregation shall stone him. Don't you think this is a little harsh just for picking up sticks? Violated God's word, word, didn't And it wasn't told to him one time, was it? It was told to him several times. And When we look at this and we say, well, we don't even know who this is, but we know that the Lord made a decision, didn't he? And he told them to carry this decision out. Now, how does this play with us as Christians? How does this uh, come into our particular uh, setting? If you remember, when we studied Proverbs, it seemed like a long time ago, a couple of quarters ago, we studied Proverbs 13:24. And it said, if you spare the rod, what are you with that child? You hate your son, don't you? And at the same time, if you love your son, what will you do? You'll discipline him, and then what's the word that that says in there? promptly is what mine says, what does that mean to us? That means there's a violation and you take care of it, right? Well, when we look at that in today's world and we see a child in the church, why do we see some of the churches won't discipline when there's a problem? Numbers, sometimes. They're going to lose members is what Nate says. Anything else? Do what? They have a better way way sometimes. Man's way, isn't it? Anything else?
1: It's not comfortable.
0: Not comfortable is real important, isn't it? Yes, sir. A lot of churches
2: follow society, and whatever society kind of says, that's what they do.
0: If you didn't hear him, it says that society kind of directs it, but that's not what the Lord wanted was. Well, if we're going to discipline a child, which we know we need to because we don't want the child to do wrong, what is more important, a soul? (laughs) you got to think of that, don't we? Now, here was a group of people that saw this man picking up sticks and it was wrong. And they took action, didn't they? Well, when when we think about this, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5. I've got two examples here. In 1 Corinthians 5. Unless you want to make any other comments about the uh, children and the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, I want to read 1 through 8 and a couple of other verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as it is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Verse 2 And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. Verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, Your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then verse eight, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, for with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Then when you skip over to verse nine, it says, I wrote to you in this epistle not to keep company with sexual sexually immoral people Then in verse 11 now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator covetousness dilator reviler drunkenness or extortioner not even to eat with them and then in verse 13 but those who are outside God judges therefore put away from yourselves that wicked person so here Paul is addressing an issue that's in the church and basically, the situation is fornication, that, and they're not repented. And the cho- church has not done really anything, have they? They've not taken care of the issue, and Paul's challenging this with him. Well, then the instructions come with the verses that I read, put him away. You're not glory. Your glorying is not good, and keep no company with him. When we think about this person, here was a congregation that, from all of the record here in in chapter five, they had a problem at the church, didn't they? And it must have been an open problem because Paul knew about it where he was, right? So, the situation warranted that something needed to be done. When we look a little farther, let's look at 2 Thessalonians while we're doing this and just do both of them at one time. 2 Thessalonians 3 and I'm going to start, I think, in verse 6 would probably be best. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6 says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And we talked about that verse when we talked about laziness in Proverbs. Then verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And 14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as what? A brother, isn't it? So here's another situation um, that in 2 Thessalonians that the situation is they're walking disorderly <clears throat> some are not working, some are busybodies something needed to be done so the instructions said withdraw from the disorderly, note that person don't keep company, but they're not an enemy why are they not an enemy? they're your brother, they're your brother. and they have what? a soul, don't they, that we should be concerned about so they're not your enemy. When you go a little farther with these two, the conclusion with 1 Corinthians 5, they basically were ignoring the unfaithful, which is wrong, and withdrawing is an effort to save, and it works, whether we like it or not, isn't it? And when we think about that, it's not always easy. In 2 Thessalonians 3, command to withdraw to bring them to shame, not an enemy. So, so far, here's two examples that there were issues that needed to be taken care of, and the Lord, through the inspired word, told us what to do, didn't he? Well, what is the individual's, Christians', Duty when it comes to discipline uh, toward the discipline. I put several things up here. First of all, Romans 16 and verse 17. We already talked about um, um, other things in First Corinthians, but let's go back to Romans 16 and just read that, since I did not have it on there. Romans 16 and I'm going to read 17 and 18 in Romans 16:17 now I urge you brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them and then in verse 18, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of of who, the simple, so they can cause problems, can't they? So, we we have to look at it with respect toward how we handle this and do it scripturally. I uh, put on there, and we already read Second Corinthians. We know in Numbers that the that the whole congregation was told to support this and go out and stone this individual. So it's not just the witnesses, it's the total congregation. When you look at, view them as unsaved and not as an enemy, we did the uh, part in 2 uh, Thessalonians. Look at, let's look at Matthew 18 and verse 17. Matthew 18 and verse 17. Now, part of this chapter, when you read 15, 16, and 17, it's dealing with a sinning brother. And then 17, if he refuses to hear you, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So he is viewed as unsaved, but we just read in Thessalonians that what? He still has a soul, and he's still a brother, isn't he? So we've got to remember that part, don't we? And that's not always easy for some people. Do not keep company with them. We read that from both ways uh, in Thessalonians. Do not eat with them. We read that too. Do not receive them. Let's look at that passage in 2 John 9 and 10. 2 John 9 and 10. in 2 John 9 and 10 whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the father and the son if anyone this is verse 10 comes to you and does not bring the doctrine do not receive him in your house for he who greets him does what with his evil deeds says he shares it doesn't Well, I think I've got one more. We read in, in 2 Thessalonians that what we are supposed to do is admonish them. What does it mean to admonish somebody that's in sin? Does it mean to you know take a board and hit them? What does it mean? Warn, Warn them. Correct them. What else? Or anything else? Restore with the spirit of God. You know, that's very important, isn't it? It's, if you don't approach somebody the right way, what's the first thing they're going to be? They're going to put the shield up, aren't they? They're going to be defensive. And that's why I always go back to the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the meek. And meek didn't mean that you're weak. It meant that you were under control, that you did it in a way to talk this person. Because what are you concerned about? Are you hoping you can take them away in chains? No, you're hoping to save a soul, aren't you? When you think about it, I put a few things up here. Keeping ties to a sinner tells the world that you do what with their sinful deeds? You approve them, don't you? I told one time in a lesson that to the young people, that you are defined by the people and the friends you keep, aren't you? If you keep friends with a sinner, what are you doing? Except to admonish them or to teach them. You're agreeing with them, aren't you? When we withdraw company from the sinful, it is designed to create shame in their heart in order to reflect on their sinful condition. It's a situation that says, I'm concerned about you. I love your soul. I'm concerned about you not getting to heaven. You need to do something about it. I said it a little bit harsh, but that's what you're doing, aren't you? Well, if you can't get to their heart, it's going to be tough, isn't it? We are to avoid giving any appearance of approving of the sinful conduct and bringing reproach on the church. You know, that's important because... Here is a situation, whether it's Corinthians, whether it's Thessalonians, that you have a problem in the church. If that person that is sinning gathers his group around him, what does it look like? They agree with him, don't they? So as a congregation, if it has been so set up that they've been sinful, we have an obligation to be concerned about his soul, don't we? And just like on the bottom, it says the individual Christian is to admonish, because friends with sin does what to you and I? It it causes us to sin, doesn't it? Any comments about this? Bring the microphone and sit over here. So
3: I had several things, but I'll just stick with one right now. We're talking about the situation in Corinth in chapter 5. And it's kind of difficult to to maybe put the finger on why in the world were they glorying? And what does that mean? So I've had a hard time figuring this out for a long time. But I I think maybe they have the same attitude that Paul addressed in Romans 6. About, you can't continue in sin the grace may abound. And I'm just throwing it out there as a maybe. Because if they are kind of circling the wagons around this bird, their idea might be, you know, it's not that bad. Or, hey, God's grace is going to cover it. And it may be that Paul is trying to tell them, no, that's not how to look at it. You have to look at it from the standpoint of what we're talking about right now, which is the opposite you, that this is a big deal, here's what it can do, and here's the appropriate way to deal with
0: it. You know, I, I've looked at that, too, and I almost think, as we studied in Proverbs, that there was pride and arrogance to the point that they thought it was okay. You know, if, if you do something wrong long enough, what do you do? You okay it, don't you? I mean, it's okay to, to do it and when you read that it says in, in verse 2 and you are puffed up is what mine says and most most uh, renditions will say arrogance there you are arrogant and with that arrogance could come the glorifying and that's the way I kind of looked at it because I've done the same thing why would you glory in sin but when you get so far removed you have that problem. Another comment?
1: I was just thinking from a mom, kind of grandmother's perspective. When you discipline a child, if that child doesn't feel loved and doesn't feel part of the family, that discipline just makes them angry, and it causes them to, to have anger. Um, I think it's the same way in the church. If a person is not treated right by the brethren and doesn't feel part of the family that discipline is going to do very little to help them.
0: And, and that comes back to our heart, doesn't it, and our attitude as we approach it, because we'll get in here a little farther, and you'll find out we need to be thinking about stuff because we can be tempted too, can't we? Yes, sir.
2: One of the other reasons that we must practice biblical discipline is because of the influence or the leaven that that will have if we don't. And we don't know when we go into this process whether that individual is going to repent and return. That's what we hope. That's what we are trying to to accomplish. But also we have to remove that influence from the church.
0: Because you don't know who it's going to influence, whether it's a new Christian or an older Christian, you know, or a friend. So, well, let's just say we as a group... Had this sinner, and this sinner comes forward up here. David and Leland maybe sit down with them, and they repent. What do you do next? You do what? Welcome them back. Welcome them back. I kind of hit it a little harder than that, Virgil. I said, You forgive them completely when they repent. What do you think I'm getting at?
3: Forgive. forgive.
0: When you you forgive, you forgive. You don't keep a notebook over here and say, well, oh, John Doe there, you remember when he did this? Lord doesn't remember it, does he? Why should we? I've seen brethren do that where persons repented. You can tell in their heart that's what they were doing. Uh, John needs it. And They weren't forgiven completely, were they? Go ahead, John. I say it this way. uh, Genuine repentance deserves genuine forgiveness. And I think when we talk about genuine forgiveness, it's erased from the Lord, isn't it? And we need to welcome them back because we need everybody to go to heaven, don't we? And we need to be concerned about all the souls. Any other comments? Let's go a little farther. Why the church disciplines unfaithful members? We read earlier in the authority of Christ commands us to withdraw. In Matthew 28 and 18 and 19, Lord says all authority has been what? Given to him where? Heaven and on earth, right? And when he makes reference that, he, he, he ends up saying, go and make disciples where? Just in Murfreesboro? All over, isn't it? Baptizing them. So here's a situation that we know authority um, is in Christ. When you look, I put up there Colossians 3.17, it says, Do all in the name of, of Christ. That's the end of the verse. What is the first of the verse? Does anybody remember? It says whatever, doesn't it? So that means anything, right? Whatever you do in word or what? So, it's not only your words, but your actions, isn't it? Do all in the name of, of Christ. So, here that we read, it says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in both of our uh, examples, do this in the name of Christ. So, here's a situation that you and I are not making this decision. We're doing it by the authority of who? Christ. When we think of that, we need to approach these people not with hardness of heart, not with bitterness of speech, but a factor that says, I could be in the same boat. <laughs> I, could, I could be sitting where you are. What would I do? You know, And, and when you think of it that way, you will approach that person not from the meanness of saying we're going to get rid of you, but from the love of a soul, is it? And sometimes that's tough. Well, the other part, and we have a few of them here, is the basic, the basic part to bring the unfaithful to repentance, if you look up there, I have a reference to James chapter 5. Let's read that. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Um, you know, we, we need to bring the unfaithful to repentance. We need to be aware of it. Last two verses uh, of James chapter 5 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth... And someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul, excuse me, from death and cover a multitude of what? Sins. So here's here's a situation, brethren, if anyone has a problem, that's not that we pick and choose, but if anyone has a problem, and I like in James where it says they wandered from the truth. You know, that's a serious situation when somebody wanders from the truth. You could have a false teacher. You could have issues like that that you have to deal with. But here we're in the process of turning this erring sinner back. And when we look at um, Galatians 6.1, it says, Restore them. Uh, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, what do you do? You restore him, as was said, with meekness or gentleness, don't you? And what does the end of that verse say to you and I? Does it say that's all you do? It says, and I'm paraphrasing, you've got to consider yourself that you can be what? Tempted. You too can be sitting in that chair. You too could be talked to. So, there, so this gentleness and this Restoring a person very important, just like James says, too. But you need to approach it by saying that's a brother or sister. We have all sinned and fallen short. He might help me or she might help me later. Also, when we go back to what Sam was talking, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, and I talked about puffed up and not that they were puffed up. And they had mourned. A beatitude says, blessed are they that mourn. And if you really study that beatitude, the beatitude's not saying you and I just sit over here and bend our head and crouch up. It says we need to be upset about sin, don't we? We, we need to look at it for what it is and not think emotionally like it's just the way the state, everybody runs it. It's, it's something that can happen to any of us. And here we need to be upset about it. And when I say upset, I'm saying upset in the way that you're concerned, you know, with this morning. Any questions about those? First Corinthians 5.5, 5, what we read, it says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What? That his spirit may be what? Saved. So our goal is not to withdraw. Our goal is what? Save them, isn't it? Or, or do what we can do in meekness and save them. Any questions about this so far? Got ladies over here on this side.
3: It'll be, it'll be real short. All I was going to ask is, could you tell me what it
0: means to deliver such a one to
3: Satan for the destruction of his flesh? I can't can't understand that.
0: I've always taken this to say when when they have sinned to a point and you've gone to to talk to them and try to work with them and they continue in sin, what are we really doing when we withdraw? We're actually saying we're going to change your life. Your life is in sin. You're on Satan's side. You're not in a saved condition. So technically, we have to say to them, however the church decides, you know, wait six weeks or whatever, then we withdraw from them, and what does it say? We admonish them. We don't consider them as part of the family. So they've been, in, in figurative sense, sent to Satan. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, well, when we look at that, remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they say? If you sin, you die, right? Well, they didn't die, but it meant that their flesh or spiritually, they would die. And so to me, it's the destruction of them in in Satan's world is the best way I can do it. I'll try to get back with you on some more of that did somebody else
1: um i was just going to say like when we do have a, a brother or sister that has been withdrawn from i have known of people who will just completely avoid them in public situations like they run into them at walmart or something and i feel like as if we're wanting them to come back we need to like you said that spirit of gentleness like if we approach them and be like they may be on the edge and they need somebody to come to them first like they may be hard so like not avoiding them in public and just being like, hey, how are, you? how are you? Have you thought about coming back to church? And I feel like that's something that when we talk about withdrawal, people are like, oh, we can't talk to them anymore. We can't have anything at all to do with them. And they're right. We can't eat or do anything like that. But, like, when we're in public and we just happen to run into them, there's nothing wrong with having a conversation and asking them about their spiritual, their spiritual
0: well, state. Well, we said that we need to admonish them, right? You can't admonish them if you don't talk to them. Uh, i 've known some people instead of doing that they 'll just put a thing in their phone, and every so often they 'll send them a text or give them a call you know to say we 're concerned about you. You need to do it. we need to follow up. Carry oh okay. oh, okay, who is first? Go ahead. Carrie. It doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was just going to make a comment. There appears to be a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. So it seems like, and this is, I'm throwing this out, but that we're withdrawing from that person to show the severity of the sin and the destruction of that fleshly desire that is um, entrapping that Christian and by doing that, then we, in essence, reach the goal of saving the spirit.
0: See, he said it better than me. That's right. Come on up here, Carrie. You can finish this. We are warring with the flesh, aren't we? Paul said that before. Good point. Chris, go ahead.
2: Thanks. Um, as for the purpose behind this... Um, the first purpose for a lot of these things that we read in the Bible is because God said so. It may not be easy for us to understand, but whether it's for the benefit of the person who is erring, and any of us have erred in the the past, sure, partially. Is it for the protection of the congregation? Yes, definitely. However... um, it's the first reason is because God said to do it, and we may not understand all the reasons. Uh, secondly, with, um, with Galatians 6, 1, uh, we, we have a lot of uh, verses on how we should treat those who are erring, uh, who are unrepentant. But uh, it, this is like a, a territory where it's really easy for any of us, uh, really easy for us to get a detail wrong and uh, the, the gentleness is, is so vital so I'm glad glad it's up there yeah there might be some
0: information we don't have and that's why we need to talk to him exactly and you probably hit the nail better on the head than I've done all the way through the bottom line is the Lord said do it <laughs> that's the bottom line the Lord said do it the same thing he did with the Sabbath didn't he he said do it it's a holy day who else am I moving okay go ahead
4: I was just going to tag on to what Kerry <clears throat> had said, and uh, I'll leave it alone. But I always, I go back to the idea that when we become Christians, uh, we, our hearts are circumcised to the world. We put that off. And it reminds me of what Jesus told Peter. He said, Satan greatly desires to sift you. And when he is done, return to your brothers. And I think that. Kind of puts it in perspective to me because Peter was allowed uh, after he denied Christ, which is what sinners do uh, when they leave uh, and that flesh grows back uh, that was cut off. Uh, and Peter came back, uh, and we see him in, in growth through Acts and then over to his epistles. And that's what we truly pray for each and every one who is sifted by Satan, that they come back and they help others who are going through the same things and that they grow uh, and prevent that flesh from growing back. But it takes uh, their brethren also to help them do that.
0: And sometimes they don't see that it's wrong. Good point. They're opening the door, so I need to do couple of slides quick also it is to keep are you did you have a comment too go go ahead and i'll just put this one up
1: it kind of goes with this this point but i think
0: uh numbers 15
1: continuing on after the man's stoned to death uh the lord again speaks to moses and i think this kind of sums up everything we've been saying which is the lord says uh, tell them they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a, a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot. So there you, you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So whether you're talking about the man that picks up sticks on the Sabbath and is stoned for it, or you're talking about Ananias and Sapphira who are killed for lying about money, um, or... The man that's committing adultery in, in 1 Corinthians, um, all of them are the same, which is they were disobedient to God. And the punishment of being disobedient to God is death, ultimately. And so uh, it's it's fighting to save them from that uh, consequence.
0: Great point. I'll go through these two slides quick. Uh, another part of why we discipline is to keep the church pure, which we've a little bit talked about. It says there... For put away from yourselves that wicked person. The whole church is affected. Um, we know that a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole. Um, also, I, th- I think we sometimes miss, and you brought up Ananias and Sapphira, that all may fear. Um, and, and it says in 1 in Timothy, those who are sinning and rebuking the present of all, that the rest may also fear. We need to have a reverent fear, don't we, about God's judgment and about sin. And when you think about this, God has done his part. He's done everything that we can think of, had a plan of salvation, a scheme of redemption, a saving Savior that has helped us, and it's a plan for all people, not just the Israelites. But we must do our part, too, in going back to the meekness and warn these unruly and admonish them. But there's also the part that the sinner must do their part to repent and correct. And then the last verse I had, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me out of Revelation 3. Thanks for the comments.